0: How many of you have a bulletin this morning? See your hands. If you don't, I'd like to ask you to get one. If your ushers would see that anybody who doesn't have a bulletin, get a bulletin, because we're going to read together the text for today. On the back of your bulletin, there are three passages of Scripture which I selected from the book of Isaiah to fit in with our subject matter today. Today and i'd like for you to stand if you would and read with me these three passages of scripture first from isaiah chapter 42 verses 1 through 4 and then isaiah 43:10 and then isaiah 49 verses 3 and 6 ready behold my servant whom i uphold mine elect in whom my soul delighteth I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he hath set judgment in the earth and the isle shall wait for his law. Isaiah 43.10 Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and neither shall there be after me. Isaiah 49 verses 3 and 6 And said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldst be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Our task today is very wide and full. It is to cover the chapters in Isaiah from chapter 40 to verse 66. And this is a challenge for me, it will be a challenge for you. So I pray that we will labor together and be patient with each other. Today's message will be the 15th in the series on the mystery of human suffering. And we've entitled the message, God's Suffering Servant and Witness. In the first 13 messages on the subject of the mystery of human suffering, we made our journey into the understanding of the role of suffering in the redemptive plan of God. In the 14th message, we looked at Satan's attempt to use suffering as an instrument to sift and destroy both the creative and the redemptive work of God in the lives of his faithful servants. And we use the book of Job to illustrate this effort on Satan's part. In today's message, we wish to show how God has chosen to use the sufferings of his servants to serve as a witness unto his truth in evangelizing the nations who are blinded from the truth of God due to their sin and selfishness. And in doing so, we will seek to show that there can be no true evangelizing without the occurrence of a confrontation between the holy God and the sinful creature, man. And that whatever and whenever God's servants bear witness to the truth of God in salvation, they will suffer in varying degrees, even unto death in the form of martyrdom. Most teachings on the book of Isaiah focus on the history of Israel and its future, as portrayed by Isaiah's prophecies. But in doing so, they often miss the method through which God is going to bring about the fulfillment of those prophecies. And God's method entails the proclamation of a message which results in conflict and ensuing suffering in the lives of the messengers. This is God's method of evangelism. It is with this in mind that we proceed to examine the sermons contained in Isaiah chapters 40 through 66. The occasion for the book of Isaiah was the Assyrian crisis, which had brought about the destruction of the northern kingdom and threatened the existence of southern Judah. Because of the sin of idolatry, Judah was soon to be devastated as a country and multitudes of survivors would be taken captive and deported to live in the distant land of Babylon. Chapters 1 through 39 describe the circumstances and the events leading up to such a future disaster. While the political and social questions of such a happening were many, the big issue was a theological one. Among the many questions which this impending captivity of God's people raised were, is the God of Israel truly the sovereign of history? Are the idols and gods of the pagan nations stronger than the God of Israel? Does might make right? What is the role of God's Israel In the world? Does his judgment of Israel mean his rejection of Israel? Is there a future for Israel? Does the God of creation have any redemptive purpose for the other nations of the world other than Israel? Now, when I use the term nation, listen carefully. I will be primarily referring to a race or a family of people rather than the type of government which they may utilize. The tone of impending judgment changes, though, in chapters 40 through 66 to that of restoring the hope of the exiled people by giving them a new vision And purpose while living in a strange and foreign land far away from their homeland. The construction of this section of Scripture is somewhat like a symphony or a harmony of related themes or sounds. A theme is presented and then briefly discussed, and then a second is presented and then a third. Then Isaiah has a felt need to go back and repeat and enlarge upon the first, or the second, or perhaps the second, and then the third. This repetition of themes is designed to produce a profound effect upon the people whose minds are already beginning to suffer from the prospects of a future captivity. These reoccurring themes in these chapters include, among many others, one, the greatness of God, two, the conflict between divine glory and human pride, three, the self-destruction which pride brings, and four, the grace of God in restoring a ruined humanity to himself. I would have you note, though, that these themes are not confined to this one theme in, to one time in history, but have been reoccurring ever since the fall of man in the garden, and will continue until the new heavens and the new earth are completed. Now, in order to give the people a renewed hope, Isaiah presents a breathtaking description of the greatness and the power of the God of Israel. God is presented as absolutely sovereign over all creation and over all of the nations. Human history in its entirety is pre-planned by Him and nothing can frustrate His plans. Chapter 46, verses 9 through 11. And the fact that His own people are in captivity is in itself a part of his sovereign plan. The good news, though, is that God, who has allowed his people to be taken into captivity, will act again and, to, and deliver or save his people. God's plan for the nation will be achieved. And more than this, God's concern is for all the nations or races to be brought unto him. That is, God's purpose in promising a restoration to Israel is not just for Israel's benefit, but it is for all the nations of the earth. So God's concern is not limited to one family, but many families. When God will stoop to rescue His people Israel, He will do so with the purpose in mind of reaching out to the entire world of mankind. He will provide the solution to the problem facing every human being. And that's your problem and my problem. The end result will be a new heaven and a new earth in which suffering and pain will be no more. Chapter 65, verses 17 through 19. The uniqueness of God's method of solving the human problem of suffering, conflict, pain, and death is by the means of suffering, conflict, pain, and self-sacrifice even to the point of death. That sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? God's special servant will execute this plan, but he will be only the initiator and the leader. The believing remnant of God's people will be called to follow the servant and witness unto his truth so as to continue his ministry using the very same method of suffering and self-sacrifice until his ministry is completed. Then this servant will be their God and dwell among them forever and ever in a perfected state of glory. If this is beginning to sound like the gospel of Jesus Christ, Brother Asa, it is because it is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the good news of God's faithful witness and servant himself. Let's consider now first the greatness and the glory of God as seen in these chapters. In perhaps no other book of the Bible is the wonder and the grandeur of the God of the Bible so ably displayed to us as in Isaiah. Throughout this book, God is, quote, high and lifted up, end quote. Chapter 6, verse 1. He is the Holy One, and the whole earth is full of His glory. Chapter 6 and verse 3. Beside Him there are no other gods who can save. I am God, there is none else. Chapter 45 and verse 22. In His hand... Assyria was but a tool for him to use. Chapter 10 and verse 5. Mighty Cyrus will become but an errand boy. Chapter 45 and verses 1 through 5. The nations of the earth, be they small or great, are but a, quote, drop in a bucket, end quote chapter 40 and verse 15. And incidentally, if you didn't know where that expression came from, it came out of the Bible. A lot of expressions we use originate in the Bible. And human beings are viewed as grasshoppers before Him in weakness, chapter 40 and verse 22. But God is not only transcendent over His creation in majestic greatness, He's also holy. Isaiah's Favorite expression for God is the Holy One of Israel. Chapter 1 and verse 4. He uses it some 29 times in the book. To be holy is to be set apart. God was not merely a superhuman like the pagan gods. Neither was He the man upstairs or the grandfather in the sky. He is of a completely different order of being from that of his creatures in that he has no limitations. But God's holiness is not limited to his ontological great otherness in Isaiah's thinking. What also set God apart from humanity was his moral and ethical perfection. Isaiah's response to his vision of God was... I am unclean, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean humanity. Chapter 6 and verse 5. I would have you note that until a person is confronted with the holiness of God, they will not see themselves as exceeding sinful. And the sufferings of Jesus Christ on behalf of guilty sinners will be viewed as foolish and unnecessary. I stand before my Creator not only as finite before the infinite, not only as mortal before the immortal, not only as partial before the complete, but I stand as morally filthy in contrast to Him who is morally pure. Any lower concept of God then this constitutes the Bible's essence of idolatry. Let's move now to consider, secondly, the plight and problem of humanity. The second theme which Isaiah develops is the sinfulness of mankind. For Isaiah, sin is defined as rebellion against God's lordship. He begins and ends the book on this note. For your own purposes, look in chapter 1, verse 2, the beginning of the book where he uses the word rebellion. And then the last verse in the book, chapter 66 and verse 24, he defines sin as transgression. God is the only Lord, the only Holy One. He has made all things for his sovereign purposes. He is directing history to its final goal of universal peace and health. How incredible is it then that a human being, the work of God's own hands, should rise up against the Creator and say, No, you shall not. This is seen in chapter 10 and verse 15, chapter 29 and verse 15 and 16, and chapter 64 and verse eight. Let's consider Isaiah 29:16, if you'll turn there with me for a moment. Again, we're illustrating how ignorant it is for a creature to try to say to the Creator, "You can't do what you want to do." Isn't that turning things upside down? Well, that's what is brought out here in verse 16, 29, 16. God says, Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say of him that made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he had no understanding? Isaiah views this rebellion as an expression of human pride. We, as finite creatures, refuse to accept our role as creatures and admit that we are dependent upon God. We will be high and mighty. We will promote and idolize those who pretend to be high and mighty. We want to be in control, and we will seek to destroy everything which we cannot control. Chapter 10, verses 7 through 14. It is this sinful pride which Isaiah sees as having put a barrier between God and mankind. In Isaiah 59, 2, God says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. The original sin of Adam and Eve has caused an intellectual blinding of the mind that manifests itself in worshiping limited things. Let that sink in. Isaiah is astounded at the stupidity of this rebellion. Go to the first chapter, verses 2 and 3, and note there what God says. He says, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel does not know my people does not consider. Any clear-headed examination of the facts of life ought to make it clear that humanity is not the ultimate power and cannot solve its problems of war, suffering, and death. That ought to be as clear as a bell. Death grins at our pretensions to greatness. Chapter 14. What earthly nations can conquer their foes and remain in continual power? Chapters 13 through 23. All of the wars in human history have been fought to establish peace by controlling those of another position. What human leader can be depended upon to never fail his followers? This is brought out in chapters 7, 21, and 28 through 30. And yet men persist in attempting to solve their problems by the folly of self-control. Because the alternative, listen, is too distasteful. They would, the alternative is that they would have to bow, Brother Jim, before the sovereignty of God and become his servant to serve others. And that alternative fallen man will not embrace. The result of this rebellion is intellectual suicide. Isaiah sees that the thinking A rebellious man has become darkened and blinded to the truth of God's lordship. Isaiah sees men estranged from God as living in a dark prison. They are said to dwell in darkness. Chapter 42, verse 7. Another metaphor. They are said to be trapped in caves and cannot see true reality. Isaiah 45, verse 22 says, This is a people plundered and despoiled. All of them are trapped in caves or are hidden away in prisons. They have become a prey with none to deliver them. Deep darkness covers the whole earth, and all of the nations of humanity are in it. Chapter 60 and verse 2. We've seen the greatness of God. We've seen the plight and the problem of sinful humanity. Let's consider thirdly the solution for human sin and suffering. If man is helplessly blinded by sinful pride, how can he be delivered? I said helplessly, in bondage to his own pride. How can he be saved? The answer is revealed in the meaning of the prophet's very name. Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. That is, the Lord is the source of salvation. Man's deliverance will not be in himself. It will come from an outside source. If man will not seek after God, then God will take the initiative and seek after man. The Holy God, the High and Holy One who has in eternity will stoop to the lowest level of servanthood, Philippians 2, and suffer shame and humiliation at the hands of his creatures. Would you have thought of that, Asa? To solve man's problems? You become the source or the solution. Thus, another dimension of God's attribute is revealed to us in Isaiah. Namely, His love and His humility. We read in Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. But if God is to be the source of salvation, then how shall the nations become aware of the saving knowledge of God? Their predicament is complicated by the fact that the one and only true God is a God who hides Himself. Isaiah forty-five fifteen says, Verily thou art a God that hides thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Men cannot see God directly. For he is invisible to the visible eye. Then how shall they see or come to know him? They must see him in the things which he does. Isaiah reveals four ways in which people can see or understand the reality of the invisible God, first in creation, second in prophecy, thirdly in the history of Israel, and fourthly, and in his most special way, in the story of the servant of the Lord. For our present purposes, we will deal only with the last two ways in which God reveals Himself to mankind, namely through the nation of Israel, the race of Israel, and the servant son, which will come to be none other than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is how God will speak to the nations. He who is invisible must be seen or understood by the actions that he is participating in, let's consider then first Israel as God's servant and witness. One way in which God reveals Himself as a Savior is through His people known as Israel. In fact, this is the precise and primary purpose in farming the nation, or the race of Israel. In Isaiah 43, in verse 21, God says, This people have I formed for myself. They shall declare my praise. If you want to see the invisible God, look at his people, Israel. It is they, which will manifest praise unto His name. Also, Isaiah 49, verse 3 says, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But we ask the question, what is the method by which God's servant Israel shall glorify God? And the answer is by witnessing unto the truth That salvation is found exclusively in the Lord. Isaiah 49, verse 6. Listen as I quote it. Speaking to his people, I will also give you for a light to the nation, or the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And what you're going to see is that The people of God known as Israel who are his servants and his special servant son are so closely identified that in intertwined in some verses they are almost one and the same. Note that the role, I'm going to quote that verse again, Isaiah 49, 6. I will give you for a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Note that the role and the mission of God's servant Israel is defined, are you still with me, as enlightening the blinded eyes of men, which is God's way of saving sinners. To have an enlightened mind is to be saved from the consequences of sin. Israel will be God's source of salvation. The unfaithful and unbelieving segment of Israel has never done this. And never will. It is only the faithful and believing remnant of Israel, those in whom there is no guile, an Israelite indeed, who will have and continue to glorify God by witnessing unto the truth of God's way of salvation. Beloved, the people that are living over there in the Middle East are not the true Israel of God, for they are not witnessing unto the truth that God alone is the source of salvation through Jesus Christ, His Son. It will be the believing remnant of Israel to whom God will now focus on to work to bring forth His servant's Son. It is now in the context of God's central purpose for the people of Israel that Isaiah introduces the concept of the witness. Isaiah describes this in dramatic form in chapter 43 in verses 9 through 12. Very interesting passage. It can be just read over and missed though so easily as what's going on here. In a metaphor, in these verses, God has summoned all of the nations into a courtroom to participate in a debate, and the dispute is about their gods and their ability to save or deliver them from their problems. And God draws the nation's attention to history. And he makes this challenge to the nations of mankind. Verse 9. Let the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? History. Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, "It is truth." I see how easy that one verse can be skipped over and not understood. What is God asking all of the nations of Adam's race? He's asking this: Who is in control of history? Only the one who leads history knows what's going to happen. In the future, do you have any prophets who can truly explain the purpose of human events and where history is heading? I challenge you, speak up! It's like God is forcing mankind to ask, Where did you come from? Why are you here? Where are you going? Is there any meaning or purpose to living in a world of suffering in which you're going to go back to the dust of the earth? Why were you born if it's just to die? And rebellious men with all of their philosophies and religious idolatries cannot answer God's question because they have no Witnesses. No one that can explain the meaning of human history. So God then speaks up. And He points them to the history of Israel and the predictions made by Israel's prophets. Israel's prophets had seen that God has pre-planned all of history Therefore, He alone can foretell where it's heading and what is its purpose. In order to prove this, He calls upon His chosen people to take the stand and testify as His witnesses. Look, if you would, in Isaiah 49, 10, and 11. God says to Israel, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior." The witnesses of the nations cannot explain the meaning of history. But God's prophets in Israel can. Because they know of God who has pre-planned history and controls history. And can predict the outcome of the human race. And thus, Israel does not exist for her own glory and temporal self-interest. Did you hear that? Israel was not formed for her own temporal self-interest and glory. She has a mission to be both God's elect servant and truthful witness to all the nations of the world. Now, the word witness is an interesting word. It has a primary meaning in Isaiah as one who attests to the truthfulness of the facts of a matter. The Greeks used the word witness in reference to their trials and courts of law. And they associated it with something who, quote, someone who has... Seen something. Did it? If you were to be a witness in a Greek trial of law, you, first of all, had to have seen something. And then you were to attest to the truth of what you had seen. Over time, though... The usage of the word witness would evolve to develop into a secondary meaning, namely that of martyr. A martyr is one, now listen, who is willing to die for what he or she believes they have seen to be true. the early Christians who witnessed that Jesus Christ was Lord were sentenced to death and cruelly executed. Jesus himself in Revelation 1.5 is called the faithful what? Witness. And the disciples in Revelation 12.17 are described as those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony or the witness of Jesus Christ. Revelation 2.13 states, Antipas was my faithful martyr, and that's the same word as witness, who was slain among you, Revelation 17:6 I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus the blood of the witnesses of Jesus but what i would have us note is that even in isaiah's time god's witnesses would suffer for standing for the truth of god and that it was always been the case. It's the same truth today. Whoever identifies themselves with the truth that God is exclusively the Savior of men in Jesus Christ is going to suffer at the hands of men. You cannot be a witness without confrontation and suffering. Now let's look at the second way in which the word is used in rather uh, in God's plan. Not only will God work through his people Israel, but he will work through the Messiah, who is revealed in Isaiah as God's special servant and witness. The Messiah will be the anointed one. The servant of the Lord, as a distinct person, appears for the first time in the 42nd chapter of Isaiah. He appears again in chapters 49 and 50. Once more in chapters fifty-two, thirteen, through chapter 53, verse 12. Isaiah makes it very clear that this servant... Is God's main agent in human history. He will be a servant king. He will suffer with his people. Isaiah seven, fourteen through seventeen. He will redeem his people, Isaiah nine, one through six. He will rule over his people, Isaiah eleven, verses one through five, and he will suffer for his people. Isaiah fifty three. Thirteen, Isaiah fifty-two thirteen through fifty-three twelve. It is through the means of suffering that God will deliver His people from suffering. Did you hear that? Did I say that right? Sort of doesn't make sense. I better say that again. It is through the means of suffering that God will deliver His people from suffering, which is caused by sin. And its consequences. Now, since the book reveals God's hatred of human arrogance and pride, God's servant will establish his kingly rule as Lord through the moral force of his own humility and self-giving rather than by brute force or through the use of military means. We've been studying in Sunday school the different kingdoms of the world in in, um, uh, the book of Daniel. All those kingdoms overthrew one another by military might. God's servant will not force the victory upon people in that manner. He will conquer through humility And giving away rather than taking. Get it? How different. He will conquer by love and mercy. It is clear in some sense that this servant will be God Himself. The child that is to be born is none other than the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Isaiah 9, verse 6. He, now listen carefully, he whose humanity was formed in the womb of a Jewish virgin, Isaiah 7.14, shall be called Emmanuel because he, you still listening, is the creator of the human womb from which he will come. That's pretty deep. He who is formed in the womb forms the very womb from which he shall come forth. He shall be none other than the God-man to represent both the offended parties of God and man. In order to achieve reconciliation between the two parties, Isaiah fifty three and verse twelve. He will shine as a light to penetrate the darkened minds of mankind, Isaiah sixty one through three. But he will have only one weapon the sword of his what? Of his word. That is, he will have a spoken message that will cut through the darkness. Isaiah 49.1 reads, Listen, O isles, unto me. Hearken ye people from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb from the bowels of my mother he hath made mention of my name. I stopped the quote. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Who named Jesus? Not Mary and Joseph. God named him while he was still in the womb. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. Completion of the quote in verse 1 of chapter 49. The sword that will conquer will be a spoken message transmitted through the servant's mouth. And thus he will be God's witness. He will become God's mouthpiece to reveal his saving truth to Adam's darkened race. And this message will become glad tidings or good news. That God has a solution for man's sins and its sufferings. Isaiah 52, 7, you've all heard it. How beautiful are the what? Are the feet, are the mountains, are the feet of Him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith undesigned, thy God reigneth. (laughs) I like that. Isaiah 52, 7. This message, while it is an overture to be good news, is not good news, though, to all who hear it. It is a message of light which collides with darkness Caused by Satan's lie that man can be his own God. In order to destroy the lie of Satan, the words of the servant must cut deeply through the darkness. His sword of truth will penetrate deep, inflicting pain. And greatly disturb those who love darkness rather than light because they're what? Their deeds are evil. John 3.19 And this will lead to a violent reaction against the light. Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. But His message of good news Hurts and offends those that he has come to proclaim this message unto. When the messenger makes his appearance, he will come through the physical seed of Abraham. Hebrews 2.16 Yet when he comes unto his own brethren, his own race, his own family, the large segment of Israel will not what receive him the unfaithful and unbelieving segment of Israel, Brother Pete will stumble over him. And he will become a what? A stumbling block. They will reject God's way of suffering as the source of their salvation. When our Messiah comes, He'll conquer the Romans. And then our problems will be over. But the idea of a suffering deliverer, Israel cannot comprehend. They will put him to death, esteeming him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Isaiah 53, 4. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Isaiah 53.10 This servant's son dies not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. All we like sheep have what? Gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity. Of us all. Isaiah 53.6 Chapter 53 concludes the ministry of God's special serving servant. In bringing about the redemption of humanity through his sufferings and death. However, it also shows that the servant is yet alive to see the travail of his soul and the satisfaction that it brings isaiah 53:11 it shows him alive and directing his intercessory ministry as a priest in applying his saving benefits to the nations of humanity isaiah 53 and verse 12 he who suffers and dies is seen last as alive and well at the right hand of god Now, let's look finally, fourth heading, the expansion of Israel. The expansion of Israel. How then is the news of this exclusive redemption in God's servant, the Christ, to reach the world of the Gentiles? Now, beloved, that's where you're sitting at before me today. All of us are Gentiles here. How shall this message come to where your ears shall hear it? The portion of Isaiah from chapter 54 to the end of the book answers the question. It is the task of the believing remnant of Israel acting as God's servants to spread the way of salvation to all the Gentile nations. I find this beautiful. The conversion of the Gentiles will begin with Jewish evangelists leading the way. Think of that. This will later be fulfilled in the lives of Jesus and his apostles. Jewish evangelists will lead in the evangelizing of the world. This chapter, chapter 54 begins with an explosion of joy and celebration in Israel. Israel is told by God that though she was barren in the past, she's going to have very many children. (laughs) You ever been around a woman that couldn't have a child and go for years and then suddenly she becomes pregnant and she gets to have a child? It's what God's saying. You've been barren for many, many years, but you're going to have a lot of children. (laughs) My word, based on it. Remember he told Abraham and Sarah that? Israel is told in these verses to enlarge her tents because her seed, look at it in verse 3, shall inherit the Gentiles. Abraham had been promised that he would have seed or children. Or dependents from all, or descendants from all the nations. And now Israel is told to prepare for her family to be greatly enlarged. Are you with me? Israel's family is going to be enlarged. There was coming a time. There. When the Gentiles would become part of the very family of Israel. Your seed is going to inherit
1: the Gentiles. Enlarge the tents. Get ready. The children are coming.
0: And this missionary theme continues to the end of the book. When in eternity all of God's elect would sit down with the same, at the same table and eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God Matthew eight eleven. But this method of bearing witness to the truth of God would cause much pain and suffering on the part of God's beloved servants. Because God has decided not to use any other method, but the one He has used with His servant's son. When we become His servants, we have to be prepared to apply the same formula with us as with His special servant. That formula is self-giving and self-sacrifice. God has sent forth His Lamb, Brother Asa in order to suffer and establish redemption. But He now sends forth thousands and thousands of lambs to suffer in order to propagate this message of redemption. And you're one of them. We're counted as what? Sheep for the slaughter. It's interesting to observe that the eternal holy God who dwells in a high and holy place describes the people with whom he will dwell and use to proclaim his truth. In Isaiah 57:14, let me quote it. He says he will dwell with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. What kind of people is God going to use? He repeats this in Isaiah sixty six, verse 2. To this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. We're told by the Hebrew scholars that the word contrite means crushed and is translated in our authorized version as bruised in Isaiah 53, 5, and 10 relating to the person of the Savior. It pleased the Lord to what? To, bruise, to crush Him. To make Him contrite. To be contrite is to be crushed by life's burdens and trials. And those who are ready to witness to the truth of God's way of salvation must be ready to be crushed and humiliated as they enter into and share the sufferings of their Savior. The one who trembles at God's Word is the one who embraces God's purpose and method of salvation and obeys God's commands to spread this truth to the darkened minds of men. A crushed, Obedient witness. This is God's method of evangelism. And the clearer, Brother Bob, that one makes the gospel light to shine, the more one may expect their lives to be crushed by those who oppose the light. Isaiah's revelation about suffering as God's method for solving the most fundamental problem of humanity now becomes the most important and essential idea in the Judeo-Christian religion. What is it? Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways. Isaiah 55, 9. The essence of the Christian faith or religion comes down to this. God's method or way of salvation for the human race, so as to deliver it from its sin and its consequences, was fulfilled through the suffering and death of His servant Son, Jesus Christ. However, God's purpose does not stop there in order for salvation to reach the nation. Other servants have to step in and do their part in proclaiming this message. It not only pleased God to bruise and crush His Son, but it pleased God by the foolishness of what? Preaching to save them that believe. 1 Corinthians 1, 21. And this ministry of preaching exposes the witnesses to suffering. We won't have time to develop it, but we've been developing it on Wednesday night. This is why most of us don't share our faith. We're just too cotton-picking proud and ashamed of Jesus Christ proud of ourself, and ashamed of Jesus. We don't want to suffer humiliation and rejection and having doors slammed in our face and be told, don't bring that up again. Yes. Yes, Brother Bob, loud and clear for everybody. Which one? One twenty-four. read it for us. Beautiful passage, isn't it? Oh, that we had time to enlarge upon it. Excellent passage. Chapter 66, verse 21. Completes the vision of the expansion and final triumph of the gospel kingdom of Christ with the startling statement that some of the converts from the Gentile nations would be given the right Brother Jim, to serve as priests and Levites in the worship of God. Now, that doesn't much shock many of you, does it? Let me read it. And I will also take of them for priests and for Levites, saith the Lord. Speaking of the Gentile converts... It may not shock you as a Gentile, but I tell you, it would shock an Orthodox Jew. An Orthodox rabbi of Isaiah's time would never have dreamed of the heathen becoming such an equal part of God's chosen people so as to qualify as servants in the holy worship of God. Even in the temple, there was a court For the Gentiles, they could not come into the inner court of the Jews. Later on in time, Peter, a Jewish apostle of Jesus Christ, would say to an audience of believing Gentiles, listen, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Truly, the work of Jesus Christ, the Jew of all Jews, has rent the veil of the temple and torn down the middle wall of petition between Jew and Gentile, having slain the enmity thereby. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. Thus enabling, quote, that the Gentile should be fellow heirs And of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ by the gospel. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6. Huh? This
1: is the Israel. Has God cast away Israel? No. Paul says, I am an Israelite. God is continuing to work through Israel. The believing remnant made up not only of believing Jews, but believing Gentiles in one body. And Isaiah saw this hundreds of years
0: before it was ever fulfilled. In contrast, Jesus spoke these words to the unbelieving segment of Israel who rejected him and his message. Quote, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And Peter has just defined who that nation is. The unbelieving segment of Israel misunderstood the doctrine of election by God and perished. Isaiah 66:24. look at the last verse there. We went on your own. we haven't time. we're running over. Israel thought they had been chosen to be served by the Gentiles, this segment. but the believing remnant correctly understood The doctrine as to why God chose them. They were chosen to serve God by ministering unto or serving the Gentiles. (laughs) Get it? Better to give than to receive. I wish now to make three brief statements which will apply these principles in application to three types of churches. One, a large church, or two types of churches. One, a large church, and another, a small church. And I must be brief. And I said, this is laborious for me. I know it's laborious for you. But I hope that you're seeing the gospel uh, uh, unfolding. You're seeing the height, the depth, the width, and the breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus as prophesied in the greatest gospel prophet in the Old Testament, Isaiah. Okay? Here is the application I would make to the large church. Be careful that you are not lifted up in pride in believing that you are pleasing the Lord. If you are either ashamed or opposed to the gospel, that God alone saves sinners based on His good pleasure which He has purposed in Himself. Ephesians 1-9. Do not, big church, deny the sovereignty of God in election by either ignoring it or opposing it in Active hostility. The judgment day may reveal, Isaiah 66, 24, many surprises as to where many of your members will spend eternity. The big part of the nation of Israel missed the truth of God. A word to the small church which is discouraged. You feel you're so insignificant as little, the little believing remnant. How in the world are we going to reach all these big nations out here? We're just a nobody. To the small church today, be not dismayed. If you're discouraged in the size of your church, be not dismayed. If you have and are making the gospel clear and want to see people saved through your evangelistic outreach, it may be that your reputation in the eyes of others in the community is that of Elijah of old, of whom Ahab said, are you the one who troubles Israel? 1 Kings 18.7 Hear the words of your master, little church, who is discouraged. Revelation 3, eight and 9 I know thy works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, and no man can shut it. For if you have a little strength, and kept my word, have not denied my name, indeed I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews, but are not, but lie, indeed I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. (laughs) What a consolation. Now, I give us this encouragement, but also a, a, a concerning understanding in God's dealings. Listen, little church, little flock. Sometimes, listening, sometimes... Say sometimes, when God is going to judge a community for its rejection of the truth, he will do so by removing godly leaders and churches and not replacing them. Now another word to the small church who has lost its first love and has become ingrown, schismatic, and divisive. Whenever, little church, you lose your enthusiasm to reach those outside of your own membership and believe that you're the only one standing for the truth of God, remember, God set aside the unfaithful in Israel And turn to others to start a new movement. In which he would raise up, brother Bob, witnesses. Who will faithfully contact the lost outside with the gospel. May we, in closing, ask God to enable us to boldly say with Paul, I'm debtor both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So much as in me is, I am ready to what? Preach the gospel to you that are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein, in that gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I believe this is the message of Isaiah. May it apply to us here in this congregation of believers. Let's pray. Father, we have labored in your word today both as speaker and listeners. We thank you for the opportunity to assemble. And we pray that as we come to be equipped for the service of your ministry and to worship you in your risen Son, that we will go forth from this facility, and truly be the Israel of God, not ashamed to tell the nations of the Gentiles who you are and what they are and what the solution for their problems are. Take this message, drive it deep into our beings as individuals and a church in Jesus' name. Amen.